Steve, and this is Our American Stories. We tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And we love hearing stories from you. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Some of our very best have come from our listeners. And we love to tell stories about great acts of charity and generosity and from people of every walk of life, from every walk of life. And now you're about to hear one of those stories. The holidays are supposed to be a time of love and cheer. But as we all know, things don't always happen the way they should. Especially not for the 14,000 children in Michigan placed in foster care. We start in June. We finalize the whole deal the first full weekend in December. That's Mike Papilla. And for his day job, he's the global logistics manager for Guardian Industries, a subsidiary of Coke Industries. And his night job, well, to about half the state of Michigan's foster care population, he's a Santa of sorts, spending about seven months to make sure that the foster kids across Michigan would have a less lonely Christmas. 6,774 children or 20,322 gifts, personalized gifts were delivered to children in Michigan. We've been doing this for 47 years. This project, Operation Good Cheer, started in 1971. And about 30 years ago, while Mike was working for GM, he decided to give Operation Good Cheer a hand when it consisted of only one truck that delivered to only a few foster homes. What perked my, like I say, what perked my interest, I never thought there was that many needy children in Michigan. And I'm surprised at the time, it wasn't that many children, at least at the time 30 years ago, I didn't think. Okay, and as I kept getting more involved each year, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm going, I can't, I couldn't imagine the problem in Michigan being that big, that there, that we had that many children, foster care children, needy children. Then I started digging into it and I understood some of the things as a child that I, that I was raised on, you know, the holidays and things like that, they were missing and, and I thought it was just a good cause. And now with the help of Mike's logistics expertise, they serve roughly half of the state's foster care population, a feat that not even Santa could do without the help of his elves. I bet you we have 2,000 volunteers. The majority of volunteers come out because they want to come out to help somebody. There's, there's a need. There's children in Michigan that, that are foster home children or living not in, a, not in a real home, a home that I consider a real home, not with parents that I consider parents because they don't have parents. And they have a need to bring them a little bit of joy during Christmas. So there's people out here to do it because they want to do it. They want to help them. Of the volunteers that I see, and I see them over and over, year after year, they come back. Um, we get volunteers that come up from Indiana. Um, I get a couple of volunteers that come over from Illinois. They've been doing this years, years and years back when they lived here, and they continue to come back. I get friends and family that show up year after year saying, you know, we're here to help children, and it's a need that has to be filled, and, and we need to share, and we need to give of our time to make this happen. And it, it ranges anywhere from corporate volunteers to Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Civil Air Patrol, 
retirees that come out. When you see the amount of people that volunteer and the, and the size of the group and the age of the group, it's everybody and anybody. <laughs> That's right. Mike just said Civil Air Patrol. Not only does he have truck drivers amongst his ranks, but pilots too. We move the, the gifts either by airplane or by truck to agencies and airports around the state of Michigan. Coordinating 2,000 people, 250 airplanes, and 34 semi-trucks. It, it's pretty chaotic in the uh, I'm a professional logistics person, so I'm trying to make this work on the size that we're at at this point. So it becomes a, it becomes a little chaotic, but we get everybody to work together as a team, uh, the volunteers, and uh, we get the job done. A big job for a worthy cause. Let's bring a little bit of joy to, their, to them. Let's, let's get them out of the mood of being a foster child, letting them know that somebody cares about them. There's people out there in Michigan, there's a lot of caring people in Michigan, a lot of caring companies in Michigan that want to try to make their lives better. As I explained to the group, I said, you're looking at gifts and you're looking at a bag, but every bag with three gifts in it represents a child. Treat it that way. Don't, don't drag it along the ground. Don't rip the papers. It's the way you would want to have Christmas. That's the way you'd want to get a gift from your parents. And we're sort of like just trying to fill a need in the state, and I'm and I'm sure other states in the United States have the same problem. The foster program is a great program, but it, maybe it just can't do everything, and we're helping it out a little bit. While Mike conducts this operation like a Christmas symphony, it's the truck drivers on delivery day who channel all of that Christmas spirit to the children in need. They get to deliver the gifts to the orphanages and see the kids. So... They're experiencing what a lot of us don't get to see every day. Okay, they're seeing the reciprocants. They're seeing the smiles. They're seeing the excitement. And they keep coming back year after year after year. They volunteer to come back on their own time, not getting paid by their trucking companies. They dress up in some way, Santa Claus, hats on. One of them brings um, his best friend along, and she becomes Mrs. Claus. Um, I got a couple of them that put lights on their trucks and put reindeer horns on their trucks and uh, red noses um, they're carried away because they enjoy doing it there's somebody in need and it's the time of the season to give back and share and make someone's life happy and that's that's all we're trying to do is help the children and what a beautiful story that's mike papilla and the organization is operation good cheer go to cfsm.org to help that's cfsm.org to help. 6,700 children who delivered personalized gifts over Christmas, 2,000 volunteers, and a caravan of planes and trucks delivering those presents. Three gifts in a bag, and they represent a child. And my goodness, as Mike said, treat those bags that way. And by the way, these are the acts of generosity that are being performed all over this country all the time. The ultimate media bias isn't a political one, folks. It's for bad news. And we're here to deliver the good news about this country, too. Mike Papilla's story, Operation Good Cheer's story, a Michigan story, an American story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. And this next one is one of our favorites. And it's one of the quintessential American stories. Yet chances are, many of you have never even heard of this man's name. He had over 250 kills in World War II. He is America's most decorated soldier, having received every award, citation, and decoration the Army could give, including the Medal of Honor. All before he turned 20, though he looked 14. He became a movie star and wrote 17 songs which were recorded by guys like Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagner, Jimmy Dean, and Charlie Pride. He wrote a best-selling autobiography and starred in its film adaptation, which became Universal Studios' highest-grossing film for 20 years, until Jaws broke its record in 1975. His grave is the second most visited at Arlington National Cemetery. JFK's is the first. Yet this 5'5", 110-pound baby-faced hero is practically unknown in America today, which is astonishing considering just 50-plus years ago, he received more fan mail than any other celebrity in Hollywood. To find out more about this American hero, let's take a listen to the man who wrote the book. Dr. David A. Smith is an American history professor at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He wrote, The Price of Valor, The Life of Audie Murphy, America's Most Decorated Hero of World War II. I asked him, who is Audie Murphy? It's interesting because nobody else in American history combines these two sort of archetypal roles as he does. I mean, he's the most decorated soldier from the biggest war we've ever fought. And at the same time, or right after, he was a movie star at a time in Hollywood when movie stars had a cultural cachet that they would never have again. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about him is that he brings these roles together. He brings together the role of genuine hero and celebrity, and they don't match. They don't match at all. I mean, a hero is a very particular thing. A, a hero is an important cultural element within any culture. A hero is how we learn what virtue is. I mean, a hero is someone who, for a small amount of time, embodies a particular virtue. I mean, a virtue is an idea, and we have trouble you know, relating to it until we see it in the flesh. And that's what a hero is. And that's what he was first. Selflessness, determination, duty, patriotism, that whole bit. And then, gosh, then he becomes a movie star. And he hated being a movie star. He didn't like movie stars. His first wife, to whom he was married for just a year, wanted to be a movie star badly. And that's what she was in Hollywood for. And that's what drove them apart, because he hated Hollywood. He hated the phoniness of celebrity. And he, he disparaged his own talents. He refused to hang around other actors, mostly. When he was on the set, he would hang around with the horse wranglers and the stuntmen and the props guys. And it's fascinating to me that here, in this one person, you have extreme heroism 
an extreme celebrity is trying to mix. And his story is a story of how we've confused them today. In mythology and legend, a hero is a man of divine ancestry who is endowed with great courage and strength, celebrated for his brave exploits and favored by the gods. In reality, Audie was all these things. But as to the part of ancestry, it was far from divine. Here's Joanne Mattern, author of Audie Murphy, Fact or Fiction. Audie Murphy was born on June 20th, 1925, and he was born in a little town called Kingston, Texas. His parents were sharecroppers, and um, that means that they uh, picked cotton in fields, but they didn't own the fields. The fields were owned by someone else. And in return for working, all they got was uh, a little shack to live in and a tiny little bit of the money that they earned. Everything else went to the owner of the field. The house they lived in was no more than a little shack. It had no running water, no bathrooms, no electricity. They had 12 children all together. And as soon as the kids were old enough, maybe four or five years old, they went to work in the cotton fields with their parents. Audie later said that he just worked and that it was a full-time job just existing. In fact, when Audie was born, his mother, Josie, couldn't take time off to take care of the baby, so she put him in a baby swing and took him out in the cotton fields with her. Audie's father, his name was Emmett, and Emmett, he was pretty lazy, more interested in, in gambling and having a good time. And the only time they got any meat to eat was if Audie and his brothers went out and hunted them. A neighbor once lent Audie his gun, and it had eight bullets in it. And Audie went hunting, came back with four rabbits and four bullets still left in the gun. That's how good a shot he was. Here's Audie's sister, Nadine Murphy. He got a little old 22. I don't know where, but he was really good at it. He could kill a rabbit on a run. Well, that's how we, that's how we lived, Dad. That's how we ate. He would go out and kill squirrels and rabbits. And uh, I guess we could say we're alive today because of him. He was my hero even then, before he ever did anything great. He was great to me then. Here again is Dr. Smith. One of the things that defines him throughout his entire life is his sense of duty to the people who are depending on him. He felt his duty toward his younger siblings in a profound way. Times were beginning to unfold that would shape his destiny forever. The country was in the throes of the Great Depression, and at one point things got so bad for the Murphys that they moved into a railroad boxcar. When he was 13 years old, his father left the family, and he never came back. So now Audie had to step up and be the man of the house. And in order to do that, he had to quit school. So he never got farther than the fifth grade. But the person that was hardest hit in the family was his mother, Josie. And in 1941, she died of pneumonia. And he said her early death was not unusual in the story of a a sharecropper family, uh, particularly when the sharecropper himself runs off, leaving his wife to take care of their children. Anyway, so Audie was only 16. He had younger sisters and a brother to take care of, and he couldn't take care of them because he had to work. So they were sent to an orphanage. And then everything changed. Everything changed. Here's Murphy historian Michael West. Well, the time that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor 
December 7th. I believe Audie Murphy and Monroe Hackney were actually on a double date at a movie theater. And after they returned from the movie theater, they learned, of course, of, of the bombing. Well, immediately, all the young men, or a number of the young men, chose to, to join. Well, that included Audie Murphy as well. Well, at that time, Audie was only about 17 and a half years old, plus he was plagued with that baby face. And immediately, uh, the recruiters recognized that he's too young. Uh, he tries the Marines. They virtually laugh him out. He uh, has visions of joining the paratroopers. Well, that, that never works out. So finally, he is uh, just simply run off, in essence, and he, he doesn't join. So Audie's older sister, Corinne, got him a false birth certificate that showed he was a year older than he was. So after he turned 18, as it said on his birth certificate, he was actually only 17, he went back and joined the Army, and he was accepted into the infantry. And what a story so far. I'd been a fan of the movie, but just didn't know. Just didn't know the circumstances, my goodness. Losing a father and a mother, and then having kids orphaned, living out of a boxcar. And when we come back, more from these great historians, more on this remarkable life, the life of Audie Murphy, here on Our American Stories. And if you get a chance, go to ouramericannetwork.org. We've done a couple of hundred hours now on this Days in Histories, on just pure stories, and particularly soldiers' stories. Arctic Winter's story from Band of Brothers, his life. You'll hear from him from the grave. When we come back, more on the life of Audie Murphy. This is Our American Stories. American Stories. We're listening to Wiley J. Smith's Ballad of Audie Murphy. And if you've never seen the movie, To Hell and Back, 
It comes on TV all the time. Don't skip it. It's terrific. And it should be a remake. His life story should be a remake. So everybody today knows who he is. But let's go back to the story, back to Audie Murphy's life. The Army Infantry was the most accepting of recruits who appeared to possess the least amount of skills needed for combat. Audie Murphy attended two boot camps before seeing any action, and in both camps, the Army tried to protect the little recruit they nicknamed Baby. They tried to put him in their post office and then their kitchen, but Audie would have none of it. Nobody pushed him around. I mean, he, he was impressively tough from the very beginning. And he would literally push himself until he collapsed. The guys he met there at boot camp remembered that he was clearly in his element, even though he was small of stature, even though he was baby-faced. And uh, his superiors wanted to find some place for him that he might be a better fit, because honestly, he wasn't a good fit in the infantry until you got to know him. And he said, absolutely not. I want to be in the infantry. I want to march with this pack that's as big as I am, and I'm going to do it. And his superiors reluctantly let him stay, but they made a good decision. Audie was assigned to Company B, the 15th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Division. No one could know that this poor tenant farmer's son would one day help to cause the demise of Hitler's promised thousand-year Reich by performing such wondrous deeds in battle that they seemed almost mythological. Here's one of them. The first time he goes into combat with the 3rd Division is in the invasion of Sicily. And Laddie Tipton is a soldier in his company, and, and they are extremely close. Laddie has an estranged wife and a daughter and Audie Murphy, I don't know if I want to say envies him for this, but Audie Murphy realizes how special this is to have a wife and a daughter because he, you know, he doesn't have much in the way of family. And he talks to Laddie about his daughter all the time and says, you know, you're going to get back to see her, you're going to get back to her, you're going to be a great father. And then, you know, they come ashore in France together in August of 44. And they're fighting their way up this hill. He and Laddie, they're working their way up this hill in the face of a whole repeated series of German machine gun emplacements. And they, they get one German foxhole to surrender to them. And they, they wave a white flag. And Laddie says, okay, they're surrendering. We can go get them. And, and Audie says, no, 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 stay down. There are other people up there. And a German sniper from someplace else up on the hill hits Laddie in the head with a bullet. And he collapses right down into Audie's lap. And he sort of, I don't want to say goes nuts, but he grabs a gun and just charges up this hill in and out of draws and in and out of foxholes. And then he gets a German gun and goes after other foxholes. And he clears out that entire hillside. And everybody says, oh, that was the most courageous thing I had ever seen. And he says, that wasn't courage. That was just me being mad. And, you know, he goes back to Laddie to where his body is and, and he, he cries over him. It's just a, a heartbreaking scene, but it wins him his Distinguished Service Cross. The Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest military award after the Medal of Honor. And that was one of the only two moments in Audie's life he openly admitted to crying, the other being the death of his mother. 
Here's Dr. Smith with the heroic act that would earn Audie Murphy the Congressional Medal of Honor in the respect and love of the United States of America. The story of his Medal of Honor is probably the most impressive story that you may hear from World War II. He's in France. He's coming up to the German border. It's wintertime. There's snow on the ground. It's icy cold. And he's, he's leading a couple of tanks and a platoon of soldiers southward toward a town. And from the town toward him comes a company of German soldiers, maybe more, maybe of Italian, and, and two tanks. What he has with him are a couple of things that look like tanks, but they're called tank destroyers. They're faster and they're lighter than tanks, and they're meant to be able to shoot tanks and then get away. But both of those tank destroyers are knocked out of commission really early on in this firefight. And he realizes that without those tank destroyers to give his men cover, it's going to be incredibly hard for them to continue their push south across the snowy field. And he orders his men to start to fall back toward the forest. And he stays out at the front point of the position because he has a radio and he's calling in artillery from the rear. And he's telling, you know, where to drop the artillery rounds. And he was always very good at this, which serves him very well. And he realizes that if the Germans overrun this position that he has, they will go straight to the headquarters of his company and overrun their entire position. And then he realizes that over to his right, the tank that's been knocked out of commission and that the men inside are dead, he realizes that the 50 caliber gun up on the top of it, up on the turret, is still operable. And he climbs up on this tank and he, he trains the gun on the Germans coming across the field toward him. And the tank is burning, so it's producing a lot of smoke. And it masks his position. It gives him cover. It's like a smoke screen. And he, he swivels back and forth with this 50 caliber, shooting at these German soldiers that are coming across the field and getting really close. And he thought that the Germans had no idea where he was because they couldn't see him, number one, and they wouldn't even believe that somebody would be fool enough to be up on top of a burning tank shooting at them. Later he said, I remember being up on there and the thought I had was, this is the first time my feet have been warm for three months. And there's a story, and I think it's true, that you know he's up on this tank with his right hand on the gun, with his left hand holding the radio to his ear, yelling for artillery support. And across the radio comes the question, how close are they to your position? And his response is, if you'll just hold the line, I'll let you talk to one of them. It gets to the point where the shells coming in are kicking him around. They're hitting so close to him. And finally, finally they, they begin to pull back. And, and he realizes that the Germans are withdrawing. And he climbs down off this tank and he's shaking. And he walks over to a tree and he leans against the tree and he just slumps down to the ground. And right about that time, the tank he was standing on explodes. And it blows that turret, you know, way up into the air and off into the woods. And, and the people who watched this, the people who filled out the reports for him, the eyewitness reports for him to get the Medal of Honor, said they had never even seen anything like it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. And when we come back, 
more of this remarkable story, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Stories, the final segment of this remarkable life, this remarkable man. Though he was badly wounded, Audie never left his gun. He killed 240 men and made the Germans run. And when the fight was over, the men all gathered round to shake the hand of the Texas man that backed the Germans down. sent for him when he heard what he had done gave him the highest honor our country has to give he said you didn't fight in vain as long as freedom lives shutters and boards cover the windows of the house where we Shutters and bolts cover the windows of the house where we used to live. All I have left is a heart full of sorrow since she said she'd never forgive. The house that we built was once filled with laughter. But I changed that laughter to tears And now I live in a world without sunshine Oh, how I wish you were here And this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Dean Martin singing an original composition written by none other than Audie Murphy. Then let's return to the story of the most decorated soldier ever in American history. If you happen to end up in a foxhole with Audie Murphy, he was going to talk to you. And what you might hear is not what you'd think. A, little, a guy who's just scared to death all the time finds himself sitting in a foxhole with Audie Murphy. And Audie says to him, you know, don't be afraid to be scared. There's going to be times when you're scared to death. And then Audie tells this kid, I'm always scared when I'm at the front. And it's, it's, the irony is that everybody else in the division says, when we hear that Audie Murphy's in the front, the rest of us in the rear can go to sleep and sleep well. But Audie tells this kid, you know, there'll be times when you want to cry, and it's okay to cry. I mean, Audie transforms very much over the course of his time as a soldier from someone who has nothing but disdain, you know, sort of like Patton style, for people who can't take it and who break under combat to somebody who understands intimately how, how harrowing it is and what it can do to somebody. With attendance in the thousands, Murphy received his Medal of Honor in the Austrian city of Salzburg. Now this is in uh, May of 45. It's at an airfield just outside of Salzburg. He, he has this survivor's guilt already. Yes, he's He's a brave soldier, but the guys who were killed, and he's always going to say this, those are the ones who deserve the medals. Those are the ones who deserve the honor. When you see the photographs of him standing there, you think, this guy's just a kid. Well, he, he sort of is. 
Thanks to Life magazine putting Audie on its cover, he returned an American hero. I asked Dr. Smith to put into context what it meant to grace the cover of Life magazine in the 1940s. There's nothing today, and I think about this sometimes, I I can't think of anything today that is analogous to Life magazine in 1945. There's nothing that has the cultural centrality. There's nothing that in one magazine, in one photograph, can make you a national icon. But Life magazine was like that. But it's this cover And it shows him looking like a high school football quarterback in a military uniform. He's evidently young. He looks, and I think this is important, he looks completely unscarred by his past. He looks as fresh-faced as if he was fresh out of high school. And, of course, he's not. And you, you can't tell at all by looking that this guy killed, you know, 250 soldiers. This guy was shot repeatedly. This guy was 50% disabled, according to the U.S. Army. And, and this guy's carrying around, already carrying around some, some terrible emotional baggage that's keeping him from sleeping at night. But there he is on the cover of Life magazine, looking like a Norman Rockwell figure come to life. One of Hollywood's biggest movie stars saw Audie Murphy on the cover of Life magazine and picked up the phone. Here again is Joanne Mattern. There was a famous actor named Jimmy Cagney, and Jimmy Cagney saw all the press about Audie, saw his picture, and said, hey, this guy should be in the movies. So he invited Audie to come to Hollywood and try to be a movie star. And Audie even lived with him for a while. But his acting career didn't really take off, so he ended up sleeping in a gym that a friend of his owned and kind of bounced around a little bit. But then in 1949, he wrote a book called To Hell and Back, And that was all about his experiences in the war. To Hell and Back was a huge bestseller, and Universal Studios decided to make it into a movie, and they wanted Audie to star as himself. And Audie said no. He said, I don't want the public to think I'm trying to be famous by by saying, look at me, I'm a war hero. But eventually he changed his mind because he felt that he could show how brave all the soldiers were who who had fought and who had died and kind of do a tribute to them through the movie. And he also wanted to make sure the movie was as realistic as possible. And starring in it meant that he could have some say in how the battles were staged and the uniforms and how the actors behaved as the soldiers. So he ended up doing it. The movie came out in 1955. It was a huge hit. It was actually Universal Studios' highest earning movie until 1975 when the movie Jaws came out. He went on and did some movies and some television after that, but that was really the high point. Although Audie's high point was very public, Audie's low point was more private. But while all this was going on off screen, Audie, it was very difficult for him. Nowadays, we would understand that he had post-traumatic stress disorder from his time in battle, but during the 50s and the 60s, That term didn't exist yet, and people weren't really aware of it. So Audie actually, in the 60s, he started to speak out about how he felt that, you know, he had trouble sleeping. Every time he heard a loud noise, he would jump. He slept with a gun under his pillow. When he went out in public, when he was driving down the road, he was constantly looking for danger, you know, looking for something to jump out at him. And he said to be trained to kill and then come back into civilian life and be alone in a crowd, it takes an awful long time to get over it. 
he never really did get over it, but he tried to help others through his experiences. Here's Audie's friend, film director Bud Bedeker on Audie's struggle with PTSD. He called me one day and he said, uh, I'm sitting here with my 45, the picture's in good shape, don't worry about a thing, I'm going to blow my brains out. And I had two seconds and I said, that's really great. He said, what do you mean? I said, why don't you do that? He said, what do you mean? I said, do it for every kid in the country who thinks you're the greatest fellow who ever lived. That'll make everybody in the United States. Go ahead and pull the trigger. He said, you son of a bitch, and he hung up. Audie's life clearly defined who he was and what he stood for. His death was no different. In 1971, Audie Murphy was flying on a small plane, and the plane crashed, and he was killed. He was 45 years old. And because he was a war veteran and a hero, he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. And generally, if you are a Medal of Honor winner, your gravestone at Arlington, the lettering is done in gold trim. It's very sparkly. It's very eye-catching. And Audie didn't want that. He just has a plain gravestone, and it just lists his name. It's very plain, very brief. doesn't really give any indication of what a hero he was. And he's the second most visited grave at Arlington Cemetery, the first one being President John Kennedy's grave is the most popular, and Audie's number two. American news anchor Tom Brokaw wrote the introduction for Murphy's autobiography to Helen Beck. Here's how he concludes. I was first aware of Murphy as a war hero. He was on the cover of Life magazine when I was a youngster. Not long before his untimely death in an airplane accident, I was working in California when Audie Murphy came back into the news. A woman friend of his had sent her dog to a trainer and she wasn't happy with the results. As I recall, she asked Audie to intervene. He visited the dog trainer who then complained to the police that Murphy had shot at him. The local police brought Murphy in for questioning and when Murphy was released without charges, a large number of reporters were outside the police station. Murphy agreed to take a few questions. One of the reporters asked, Audie, did you shoot at the guy? Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat veteran of World War II, stared at his interrogator for a moment and then said in that familiar Texas voice, If I had, you think I would have missed? I love that moment and all that Audie Murphy stood for as a citizen, a soldier, and a hero, Tom Brokaw. This is Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. And again, 250 confirmed kills. One man, humble beginnings, humble in birth, and humble in death. If you've never been to Arlington, by the way, Arlington National Cemetery, you must go, you must take the family as solemn, as beautiful a place as you'll ever see amidst this busy city, there's just this space. And boy, no one talks, and no one laughs, and no one's goofing off. You watch kids put the phones away. You watch human beings just respect, respect the sacrifices made. And there is Audie Murphy's gravestone. I've seen it. I've been in front of it. And it's just, it's nothing. I mean, it's just like everyone else's. And it was a remarkable thing to not have that special lettering there. Many Medal of Honor winners choose it. And Murphy just didn't want to be different than the rest of the guys. 
And while he's received every award, every citation, including the Medal of Honor, all before, again, he turned 20 years old. The baby. He looked 14, they said over and over again. Remember also that he wrote 17 songs. Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagoner, Jimmy Dean, Charlie Pride. And we're going to bump out with this Jerry Wallace cover of Audie Murphy's When the Wind Blows in Chicago. This is Lee Habib, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Story. Oh, why won't it let me forget? This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And sometimes we like to bring you interesting people, wise people, who can share their wealth of information and life experience with you. Every town in America has a person or two like that, and you know who they are in your town. And so that leads us to our introduction of our Don't Be a Fool series with Frank Hanna. And he's an Atlanta native, an investor, and just an all-around smart, wise, and good guy. Let's take it away. Frank Hanna didn't have a normal childhood. My father was not the traditional guy who would take the sons out for hunting and fishing. He'd come home from collecting rent at his apartment units, and we'd sit on the kitchen table and count the dollars out, and he'd talk to us about depreciation, and it was quite an education. I started trying to think about how to make money when I was about 14. I wanted to be able to take girls out for dates, and my father was not going to pay for dates. At an earlier age than I would have thought, I had more money than I had anticipated. And I thought to myself, what now? Sort of along the lines of the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm, don't this. Don't be a fool. And so, not to be a fool, Frank actually studied how not to become one and is generous enough to share his fool-avoiding notes with us. Today's episode is titled Bacon and Jelly. Even pretty much a materialistic culture. I think that's the... I just read this morning somebody quoting T.S. Eliot who said he thinks that the only two choices in this world are between materialism and Catholicism, which was, I'm, I'm still unpacking that and, and thinking about that quote. But I think materialism is the dominant ethos of our time. And I think there is a sense that if we acquire enough material things that we will be happy. And there is some truth to it in that the animal side of us literally does need material things. I mean, a dog needs food and water and a place to be warm when he sleeps at night. And those are material things. We are material beings and we live in a material world and we do need material things. But they're just the first level. I mean, if you're using Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, they're just, they're at the bottom. But we get used to, and here's what happens. So you start with a few good material needs and those do help make you happy. So then you figure, well, more of them will make, more or better, 
will make me happier. And guess what? That's kind of true too. You know, I have a crappy little car with no air conditioning and, and, and then I buy a nice car with air conditioning. I, it, my life is better now. And if I had a black and white TV and now I got a color TV, my, my life is better. It's obje- I mean, it is. It's better. And I'm slightly happier. But at some point, in, and actually in today's world, the marginal benefits of that start to tail off pretty soon. Okay, I mean, I got a 50-inch TV. Well, I need a 55-inch TV. Come on. There's really no difference. And so I think we do chase this idea of that the material stuff. You know, what's interesting now is that the luxury goods are things like travel. So what the wealthy do, they go to Christmas parties, and the first question they get is, where are you going for the holidays? As if it's some test almost. And if you're not going somewhere glamorous enough, that there, maybe there's something wrong with you. What, what's wrong? Are you quitting? Are you retiring? Are you, are you yeah. The, the idea that one might stay home with their family members during Christmas and not be getting on jets and flying away to places, among, this is among the socioeconomic elite, it's almost a heresy that, that, that you wouldn't go somewhere after Christmas among the elite, right? And so I think this desire for more and more material and sensational experiences is a function of both the fact that, yes, at times they can make life more interesting and happier, but that it starts to tail off much faster than you think. But we all get in these habits of wanting to acquire these things. And then, I said, one day you, you wake up and you realize that you've created this situation for yourself. We have ever-rising expectations and an ever-increasing chance of not meeting those expectations. And so that's why you end up seeing really wealthy people who are also really unhappy and have a sense of emptiness. And not all of them do, obviously, but if you're pursuing materialism as the source of happiness, that's where it leads. The amount of frustration that can come from the expectations that we create with our wealth or our material goods. I noticed that when I go eat at Waffle House, and in the South we have a lot of Waffle Houses, I'm pretty easygoing. I order my food. I don't expect it's gonna come out right away, but it usually comes out, and, and if I've ordered eggs and toast and grits and bacon, and they forgot the bacon, yeah, I say to the waitress, oh, you forgot my bacon? She says, oh, I'm sorry, and then I may have to wait another five or 10 minutes for it, but hey, it's Waffle House, and you know, it's okay. Um, if I pay $50 for the same thing, which is what it costs at a nice hotel to order room service, and they forget the bacon, I'm livid. Because look, I'm paying $50, I should get the bacon. And in fact, that's, that's accurate. I should get the bacon if I'm paying $50. But the point is that I've allowed my own serenity, my own happiness be affected by the amount of money I was spending. The experience is exactly the same in the Waffle House and in the hotel. It's exactly the same. Somebody forgot my bacon. And yet, I've allowed it, and, and that's what's happened. I have allowed the fact that I have this wealth and I'm spending it to affect negatively my own serenity. And there's something wrong with that picture. 
And there is something wrong with that picture. And it's a confessional of a sort. Frank is not exactly putting himself in a good light, but he's putting us all in an equal light. We've all been exactly where Frank has been. And when we continue, more of Don't Be a Fool with Frank Hanna, Atlanta native and all-around wise guy and smart guy here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Frank Hanna in our Don't Be a Fool series. There's a guy who wrote a book, really fascinating book, called The Paradox of Choice. And he points out, you know, in America we're convinced, and I say in America because we are the most freedom-loving country probably in the world, and we're convinced that more choice is better. But again, even that has not only a law of diminishing returns, but it may actually work in reverse. So he does an experiment where he gives people a choice of three jellies they can buy in a grocery store. And when they have a choice of three rather than just one, they like that. They get to pick their jelly. But then he gives them a choice of 20 jellies. And when it comes to 20 jellies, their anxiety rises. Because they taste this one, and then they taste this one, and then they taste this one. And then we'll go back and taste that one again. And, then, and you know, how do, how do I make sure out of three, you know, the odds that I made a mistake and picked the wrong jelly are pretty low. I mean, I tasted each of them and I was pretty clear this one was better. But you give me 20, I got three or four of them that I'm thinking, hmm, I don't know. So then he went back and he asked the people the next day, what's your level of happiness with the jelly? And he found that the people who only had three choices were actually happier the people had 20. What was also interesting, though, was that he tested happiness a month later between those he had given a choice of changing jellies and those who had no choice to change jellies. Now, 90% of the people, I'm not getting these numbers exactly right, but close to 90% of the people that he offered a choice to switch jellies did not switch. But because they were given the choice to switch, a month later when he measured satisfaction levels, they were less satisfied with their jelly, even though they kept the same jelly, than the people who weren't offered the choice. In other words, just planting the seed in your mind that you've got a choice to switch can actually make you less happy. So when you order at a restaurant, order your food, and then put the menu away and don't second guess it, okay? Because if you start second guessing it, you're going to actually reduce your happiness. Where this really has an impact, though, in our culture, significant impact, is on marriage. Because we now have a culture that says, well, even though you are married, you know, that doesn't have to be forever. That doesn't have to be forever. You still have a choice. So even for the people who stay married, 
We've planted in their minds the idea that they still have a choice. I've been thinking more and more about this because I just think our greatest impoverishment is the lack of healthy families in our country. I mean, we, we got a lot of material goods in this country. We don't have enough healthy families. And I'm reminded of a letter that J.R. Tolkien wrote to his son when his son first got married. And I'm going to paraphrase this. I can't get it exactly right. Tolkien said it much more eloquently. But he essentially said to his son, okay, now you're married, son. He said, assume you might not have picked the perfect one. Because let me tell you what the devil's going to do. He's going to start saying to you, are you sure she's the one? And he's going to wait till you get married. Now you're married. He's going to say, are you sure she's the one? Well, remember that girl you dated four or five years ago? Maybe she might have made you a little bit happier. Of all the women in the world, how can you be sure you got the right one? So he says to his son, just assume you didn't get the perfect one. But assume you got a good one. And if you ask for God's grace, then you're going to be really happy with a good one. We've become convinced now in this society, and I, I've seen, I talk to a lot of young people, and a lot of whom are postponing and prolonging the time before they get married to a stage that biologically is not even healthy. Because they've been convinced that the last thing in the world you want to do is marry the wrong person. And you don't want to marry the wrong person, okay? There needs to be compatibility. But the idea that you got to find the perfect person, there's, there's literally no way to do that. To find the perfect person, you got to go through the whole field, okay? To find the perfect, you got to taste every jelly. And no one has enough time to, you could live a million years and you can't go out on a date with all the women in the world. There's no way. At some point, you have to choose a jelly. And you have to say, this is my jelly. This jelly tastes good. And I'm getting married. And ask God's grace for it. But we have created a society that says, no, you got to pick the perfect jelly. There's no perfect jelly. There's no perfect person. But God can give enough grace if there's compatibility, there does need to be compatibility. You need to like the taste of the jelly. Uh, but it doesn't have to be a perfect match. There has to be commitment, and asking for God's blessing is what allows a marriage to go forward. Marriage is really difficult. I, 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 I don't know if anyone's ever had an easy marriage. I've never met anyone who had an easy marriage. There are people deeply in love, but sub subverting your own human, your own animal selfishness to the needs of another person just goes against our animal natures, okay? And that's hard. And to do it 24-7, 365 is hard. Uh, so I, th I think we get through it with God's grace. I mean, I'm selfish. You know, I, 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 it, it, the funny thing, I mean, we can have traumas in our life, right? Um, that, that, and people have all kinds of traumas, that, that are, so, some of which are just tragic. But we all come with original sin into it. We all come, and, and, and at the end of the day, the original sin, the very root of it is pride, and the very root of that is to say, my will is what should prevail. And that's everything from where the toothpaste should be stored in the cabinet in the bathroom, 
to really dramatic things like where are we going to live and how many children are we going to have and what church are we going to go to, okay? The, the, the really serious things in life, down to the toothpaste. And there are various levels of control freaks or not, but, but everybody's got a little bit of stuff that they want themselves. They have their own opinion. So as I look back, I've been married 35 years now. I don't remember any particular big problem, but there's stuff every day. I, I will say this, as an encouragement to young people, I am more and more cognizant the longer I'm married, of the extraordinary blessings of marriage. So Einstein referred to compounding interest as the eighth wonder of the world. For, the, for those of your listeners who, who don't know finance, um, compounding interest is just incredible. You start with a dollar and seven years later it's two dollars, but then seven years later it's four, and then before you know it, right, there's a ton of money. Because it, there's this it's not exponential, I don't guess, but it's a geometric effect of the way the money grows. I think some of that can happen in a marriage. It doesn't happen for everybody, but it happens a lot more than you think. With the people who have been married for 35 years, that 35th year has a lot more joy and happiness in it than the second year, or the fifth year, or the eighth year. I think the grace hopefully gets manifested even more significantly. So I was happily married the day I got married and on our one year anniversary. I'm a lot more happily married today. And I really want young people to know that after accepting God into your heart, after that decision, I think for most people, the most significant source of joy and fulfillment and happiness in their life will be a good marriage. That was Frank Hanna you were listening to our Don't Be a Fool series. By the way, we all know the importance and significance of marriage and a joyful and happy marriage being, well, everything. If that goes south, your life goes south. And yet, do we live that way? Do we spend our time that way? Is this our primordial and primal goal in our day-to-day -day activities? And we know how important this primary relationship is, the most important relationship in any community is the quality and substance of the nature of the marriages in that community. And without them, that community suffers. And then the nation suffers. And so thank you for all that, Frank Hanna, and thanks for all you do for us. Frank is also the author of the books What Your Money Means and How to Use It Well, and also A Graduate's Guide to Life, Three Things They Don't Teach You in College That Could Make All the Difference. You can pick up both at Amazon.com. And good job and great job, as always, to Alex for running down this material and these people that we get to hear from, all kinds of people from every walk of life. And again, not famous people, not the people who want to be under the Klieg lights on TV. They don't have wisdom, they just have fame. Our folks have wisdom. Frank Hanna's story, in a way, his dad's, their stories, their wisdom, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we like telling the stories about all kinds of people, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the bizarre, which brings us to our supreme executive producer and chief proprietor of strategic irrelevance and irreverence, Jesse Edwards, with a story that is sure to tantalize all of your senses about an old-school hacker. Take it away. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial again. This is the story of a guy known as Captain Crunch. His real name is John Draper. He's legendary in the world of computer programming and hacking. The son of an Air Force engineer who himself joined in 1964. While stationed in Alaska, he helped his fellow servicemen make free phone calls home by devising access to a local telephone switchboard. If you'd like to make a call, please hang up and try again. Now, in case there are any young people listening, back before we all had smartphones, we used landlines. Or phones that were attached to the wall by wiring. If you need help, hang up and then dial your operator. And you even had to pay more money to make long-distance calls, God forbid. After the Air Force, John Draper was trying to test the signal strength of one of his own pirate radio stations when he broadcast the phone number for listeners to call in to report the strength of his signal. Well, he got a response from a group of blind kids who told him about a special whistle that could be found inside boxes of Cap'n Crunch breakfast cereal. Here's John Draper. Well, my claim to fame is... Comes out of a Captain Crunch whistle box. If you hold up one of the holes like this and blow it, that's 2600 hertz tone. That 2600 hertz tone is what controls the AT&T American telephone system. And it was developed way back in the 50s. Got started from this, really. And I learned about the phone company system and the switching tones, and I got a Captain Crunch whistle from one of the kids. So what kind of mysterious power did this little whistle have over the national phone system? John Draper gives us a basic demonstration. With this, you want to dial a number, you call up a a, a 555-1212 information number, which is free, and, and then you blow it like this. And that just basically is the same thing as hanging up. You're hanging up on a trunk level, and you go a little ka-ching sound, and then if you want to dial two, you go one three, and you dial a number. And that was basically how you make free phone calls. That's pretty impressive. In the time when you had to pay for phone calls, this guy figured out a way to hack the system with a whistle that came out of a Captain Crunch box. So next, Draper created the Blue Box, an electronic device that would recreate tones similar to this whistle. So I built a prototype of a Blue Box at home. I couldn't believe it. It worked. My parents thought I'd gone stark raving mad. And you can do just about anything with a blue box you can do as an operator. You can call other operators, you can call routing codes, you can tap phone lines, you can route calls all over the world by you just knowing what the routing codes are. And you can stack tandems. So once a long distance call had been initiated and the phone company heard the 2600 hertz tone, it terminated the call, but only at one end. Now the person at the open end of the line with the special whistle or the blue box had all the power of the telephone company operator. They could call anywhere free of charge in the world, or they could tie up phone lines of an entire city by stacking the lines. Here's a demonstration. 
The number that's ringing at this point doesn't matter. What's important is that this call has gone over a trunk from New York to a distant 4A, which can be reset by 2600. That's the supervision handshake, off-hook, on-hook. And now it's waiting for new digits, which Ben will supply. That's the sound of Youngstown, Ohio, dumping us into a trunk to Canton. And that's the handshake from Canton. Now we're in Youngstown again, which... stacks into Canton, and then Canton... gives us the handshake. While the implications of this now ancient technology might be lost on some of us now, back then it caught the attention of Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. What happened basically at this point, um, the blind kids got a hold of somebody from Esquire magazine article. There was actually this guy Don Ballinger who got busted using blue boxes and uh, got real bitter toward the phone company and wanted to blow the whistle on the phone company and let everybody know about it. And uh, the phone freaks found out about it and they contacted Don Ballinger, which is a bad mistake, and they told him about me. And then they wrote this Esquire magazine article called The Secrets of the Little Blue Box, October 1971 issue. And uh, Steve Wozniak got a hold of the magazine and uh, showed it to Jobs. And Steve says, let's build them and make them and sell them. <laughs> so that's what they did. In fact, Steve Jobs' first job, or at least his first business, was selling blue boxes, the device that allowed users to get free phone service illegally. Not only that, but you could hack communication centers all over the world with the technology. Here's Steve Jobs. You could, you know, call from a, a payphone, uh, go to White Plains, New York, take a satellite to Europe, take a cable to Turkey, uh, come back to Los Angeles, uh, and you go around the world three or four times and call the payphone next door and shout in the phone, be about 30 seconds and come out the other end of the, the other phone. So we actually, and these were illegal, I, I have to add, uh, but in spite of that, we were so fascinated by them that Waz and I actually figured out how to build one. We built the best one in the world. It was the first digital blue box in the world. And uh, we would uh, give them to our friends and use them ourselves. And You know, you, you rapidly run out of people you want to call. But it was, the, it was the magic of the fact that two teenagers could build this box for $100 worth of parts and control hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure in the entire telephone network in the whole world. But it seems like all fun and illegal things like this eventually come to an end. John Draper, Captain Crunch, got busted. I got busted because somebody was using Waz's blue box, the phone company detected it, and the person had my phone number and abused my privilege and wrote my phone number down and that was how I got busted. Otherwise, I would have been pretty, pretty safe even today because I was very careful. Captain Crunch ended up serving two prison sentences for phone fraud. While serving a third prison sentence, Draper set to creating the Easy Rider, the first word processor for the Apple II. While out on work release, he had access to a computer in a small studio, though sometimes he needed to take copies of his work home to prison so he could continue working on it. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial again. But the phone hacking mischief didn't end there for our old friend John Draper here. After prison, he made a fascinating discovery while scanning 800 numbers. Maybe two or three years later, and uh, discovered a very interesting phone number 
Uh, it was an 800 number that uh, later I discovered it to be the White House CIA crisis hotline number. And uh, there was a way to tap lines back then, so we'd sit in on the line and listen to it for a while, and it was on an unencrypted link. And uh, somebody said, Olympus, please. And the voice on the other end sounded remarkably like Nixon. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I wrote down Olympus. And two weeks later, I went to a party and somebody wanted me to trade. Uh, somebody had this really cool number. I wanted it. And phone freaks like to trade numbers. So I said, uh, I'll trade you a number. Would you like to have the, the CIA crisis hotline of the White House? And he says, you got what? <laughs> so I gave him the number. But before I even had a chance to give him the number, he'd already stacked two or three, ten, two or three trunks in there calling the number. And he got, uh, got him on the line. And uh, he said, uh, sir, we have a national crisis on our hands here. He says, what's the nature of the crisis? He says, sir, we're out of toilet paper. They hung up. <laughs> First instance of punking uh, the president. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial again. And that's phone freaking extraordinaire, the one and only Captain Crunch, John Draper. This is Our American Stories. And thank you as always, Jesse. As odd... And irreverent, as always, John Draper's story, Captain Crunch's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories about everything and all walks of American life. And this story is the story of a comedian, and we've told a few before. Stephen Wright is most famous for his slow, deadpan one-liners. Born and raised in Massachusetts, he cites comic George Carlin as his main influence. His 1985 comedy album, I Have a Pony, was recorded at Wolfgang's in San Francisco and Park West in Chicago. Thanks. I used to be a parking attendant in Boston at Logan Airport. I parked jets. They let me go, though, because I kept locking the keys in them. One day I was on an 86-foot stepladder trying to get in the window with a coat hanger. <laughs> I was arrested today for scalping low numbers at the deli. <laughs> Sold a number three for 28 bucks. <laughs> I was once walking through the forest alone and a tree fell right in front of me and I didn't hear it. I used to be a narrator for bad mimes. I live in a house that's on the median strip of a highway. Very nice grassy area, I like it. 
The only thing I don't like about it is when I leave my driveway, I have to be going 60 miles an hour. <laughs> I have a microwave fireplace. I can lay down in front of the fire for the evening in eight minutes. You can't have everything, where would you put it? <laughs> if sometimes you can't hear me, it's because sometimes I'm in parentheses. <laughs> Are there any questions? feeling kind of hyper. <laughs> About four years ago I was... No, it was yesterday. <laughs> I went to the hardware store, I bought some used paint. It was in the shape of a house. I also bought some batteries, but they weren't included. So I had to buy them again. I had trouble going home from there because I had parked my car in a tow-away zone. When I came back, the entire area was gone. One time the police stopped me for speeding and they said, Oh, you know, the speed limit is 55 miles an hour. I said, yeah, I know, but I wasn't going to be out that long. Before we get back to this legendary comedy routine, let's hear from Stephen about his writing style. The audience doesn't care about style or anything. They just care whether it's funny. Because I was, you know, I, I had more normalish material. 80% of it was like, what I'm known now, but even within that, they would if they would laugh at some of it and wouldn't laugh at other things. So they, it wasn't how I was doing it; it was the actual piece of material. And I, I just thought abstractly. That's just how I wrote. I didn't think a, a planet. I mean, that that type of material was just funny to me. I didn't think about how I talked. I didn't think about how I looked. I didn't think about anything. All I thought about was material. So then when I went on stage, I was scared because public speaking, I was so nervous and I had an extra blank face because I was afraid. And I was trying to say the joke the right way and trying to think of what was the next joke. It's very serious to communicate stuff to the audience. And then that just like went together, kind of meshed, like just by accident. Wright knew from a young age that he wanted to be a stand-up comedian when he would often dream about performing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Well, I started watching it. I was like 14 years old. I was watching it every night, and my fantasy became to, to go on that when I was like 17. It was like, that would be, you know how a kid wants to be a baseball player or an astronaut or something? I wanted to... That was my dream, not knowing that it would ever happen or anything. So then I'm in the club and stuff, and a guy from The Tonight Show saw me in Cambridge, Peter LaSalle. 
I was doing it three years, and he saw me in the club, and then three weeks later I was on the show. So I'm 26, and I'm there. It was totally surrealistic. He was really nice. He talked to me before I went on. He was very, you know, I, he could have been saying, we're going to ax murder you, and we're going to put your body in different states after the show. And I would have said, yes, that's, that's fine. That's fantastic. And so... You know, that's still the highlight of my entire career. I've done stuff after that, but that's my favorite thing ever. Now let's go back to Stephen Wright's first comedy album, I Have a Pony. I went to court for a parking ticket. I pleaded insanity. (laughs) I said, Your Honor, why would anyone in their right mind park in the passing lane? Then I asked him if he knew what time it is, and he told me, and I said, no further questions. (laughs) I'm going to court next week. I've been selected for jury duty. (laughs) It's kind of an insane case. 6,000 ants dressed up as rice and robbed the Chinese restaurant. I don't think they did it. <laughs> I know a few of them, and they wouldn't do anything like that. <laughs> Years ago, I worked in a natural organic health food store in Seattle, Washington. One day, a man walked in, and he said, If I melt dry ice, can I swim without getting wet? <laughs> fired for eating cotton candy and drinking straight Bosco on the job. <laughs> so I figured I'd leave the area because I had no ties there anyway except for this girl I was seeing. We had conflicting attitudes. I really wasn't into meditation. She really wasn't into being alive. <laughs> I told her I knew when I was going to die because my birth certificate has an expiration date on it. photograph on my license taken out of focus on purpose. So when the police do stop me, they go. Here, you can go. One night I stayed up all night playing poker with tarot cards. I got a full house and four people died. telescope on the peephole on my door so I can see who's at the door for 200 miles. (laughs) Who is it? Who is it going to be when you get here? I got an answering machine for my phone now when I'm not home and someone calls me up, they hear a recording of a busy signal. (laughs) 
I broke a mirror in my house. I'm supposed to get seven years bad luck, but my lawyer thinks he can get me five. <laughs> I like to skate on the other side of the ice. I like to reminisce with people I don't know. Granted, it takes longer. I like to fill my tub up with water, then turn the shower on and act like I'm in a submarine that's been hit. I hate when my foot falls asleep during the day because that means it's gonna be up all night. <laughs> and that's the work of Stephen Wright. We celebrate his work, his life here on Our American Stories. We've all also done the same for Steve Martin, Don Rickles, Cal Burnett, Lucille Ball, Mitch Hedberg, and Joan Rivers. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to what we did with all of them. You'll hear some of their routines. You'll hear from them personally about how they do what they do. Stephen Wright, his material, his story here on Our American Stories.